Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, the host of the Better Off Podcast. And on this episode, it's a deep dive into one of your favorite topics, annuities. Why do I need a cash value insurance product? Do I need insurance or do I need an investment? The, the next one would be, why, why do I need this particular product for insurance for a lifetime? If you're talking about insurance, mm-hmm. for a lifetime. Because very frequently, people's needs for life insurance tends to go down as you get older. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Hey, today we have got a special surprise for you. We have a CFP, a certified financial planner, who is way out in front of the industry and has been for years. His name is Gary Shatsky. He is the chair emeritus of the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. And I've asked him to come on the show today to talk about a number of different issues, including fiduciary, but also we're going to do a deep dive into annuities. So here's our interview with Gary Shatsky. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Gary Shatsky, welcome to Better Off. Great to be here. I know it's just like having hanging out with my friends, so I feel like we should just have like bagels on a nosh and a microphone, and this is all great. And then we'd get together more frequently. I know. It'd be good. <laughs> we have to do it over food. Gary, we start the program uh, with a very easy question. What is the best money decision or career decision that you ever made? The, very. That's a very easy question. The best career decision was yeah. to create my own career. I think that's what it was. You know, I felt there actually it ties in completely. I felt people needed impartial, comprehensive uh, advice that was competent, and it didn't exist when I started in eighteen twelve. Yeah, and you look good for that. Thank uh, you. Eighteen twelve. You started your career as an attorney, right? Started my career as a college graduate at age 22. Okay. I started doing, uh, I felt there was this need for this. There was no CFP. There was no fee only. There was, there were salespeople, 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 and trust companies. Mm -hmm. And I felt people needed this sort of comprehensive advice. For about five years, uh, I was just thinking about this recently during tax season. Uh, My father was constantly pestering me with, what are you doing to enhance your skill set? So I went to NYU's Graduate School of Taxation. And then after five or six years, I decided I hated lawyers so much I had to become one. So the goal to go to law school was not to practice law. And the goal to get the tax was not necessarily to do tax preparation, but to help in doing comprehensive financial advisory work. Let's talk a little bit about the the evolution of the industry, which seemed to go from the concept of selling to asset gathering. Yeah, the, the key word is seem to. <laughs> yeah, I, well, asset gathering would be still a salesmanship, Absolutely. right? But that's what they, they kind of rebranded in a lot of ways, right? But it's the same stuff. So why don't you give a little bit of an overview of what kind of advisors and financial people are out there for people who are listening to this show. So you have your uh, those that used to completely dominate the field and still do, and those that worked on commission or, or, or some other sales approach, whether they were selling stocks or loaded commission mutual funds or insurance products. Uh, you know, that's one set. Now many people are morphing into everyone's an advisor these days, you know, and and that word means a lot of different things, where they're asset gatherers, where they're really looking for money to charge assets under management. So they'll charge a percent or a percent and a half. uh, They should probably be in jail at that level. Um, These are people who are just putting together 
uh, accounts and they manage the account and they charge a percentage of assets. Frequently, they treat pretty much every client identically. Mm-hmm. Every portfolio is push a button and reallocate it across the board. Right. Otherwise, they can't scale their businesses. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, it's a fantastic business model mm-hmm. for the business owner. Mm-hmm. It's not a fantastic model for the client. And then there are, um, in, in the 80s, uh, there was, I mean, that's when I began, uh, there wasn't even an, any association that existed. And NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, was created. And the goal was that people should look for comprehensive advice, impartial advice, and competent advice. So the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, NAPFA.org, you rose up and became the chair of the board there, right? It is, it is true. I was on the board for a number of years, was chair for a couple of terms, uh, stirred uh, many a pot because accommodating others in the industry was less important and is less important to me than accommodating what the public needs. And so NAPFA today is often known as financial planners who don't take commissions or precluded from taking commissions. But what is it really? Explain well, it. Well, that is so much one small part of the picture because not paying taking commissions is only one little piece of what the public needs because that gives you objectivity. But the other part is approaching everything in a comprehensive way, taking a look at your investments and your taxes and your insurance and your cash flow and your 401k options. And many people think, well, I don't know if I necessarily need that. Well, if you care about improving your financial picture, the person giving you advice has to address all of these issues. It's like saying going to your primary care physician and saying, you know what? Don't do an EKG. I'm exactly. okay with that. Precisely. <laughs> Wait, did I say that first? Because I you could take it. I go with the blood pressure as uh, the as the as the choice. Uh, that's but, good. But that's exactly it. You can't you can't possibly do it. You know, I have a fever, but I want you to look at my fingernail. How many members are there of NAPFA right now? About. I got to tell you, I've lost I've lost track of the numbers. It's been growing quite nicely. It's certainly not as high as the public needs. Mm-hmm. And and you might ask, well, why is that? Well, everyone loves quote free advice. <laughs> so the idea behind fee only is that there's a fee right associated mm-hmm. with it. Uh, and so some people figure, eh, why do I have to pay a fee? Others pay plenty of fees. They're just they don't see it. Mm-hmm. They don't see it taken out of their account. They don't see it in the mutual fund. And in order to practice at this level, as you point out, it's not scalable. So if 100% of your focus is ringing the cash register, if 100% is making the most money you possibly can, this is not necessarily the way you want to go Mm. as as an advisor. But if you want to do a fantastic job and improve people's lives and earn a fine living, this is the way to go. It takes a lot more ongoing education and time and cookie cutter is not what it's all about. If I am looking at the world of, say, a NAPFA advisor, it's not necessarily the case that everyone who would walk into Gary's office or another NAPFA advisor's office has to go through a comprehensive financial plan that's 500 pages. First of all, the idea of, of the entire financial, what is a financial plan? It doesn't have to be a book, okay? You know, I find, I mean, for me, everyone has a different sort of approach. For me, People are not going to read the book. They're not, I'm not going to be there when they're reading the book. I'm not going to be able to meet their objections and their questions and their comments in order to get them to both a level of comfort and to improve their financial situation. But other advisors have a much 
larger book. In terms of what the fee is, you have so many moving parts in your personal financial picture. Very frequently, someone's going to come into me and say, I have whatever, a quarter of a million, a half a million. And you know the issue there is how do you allocate those funds? But there are so many other areas to improve their financial life. There could be tax returns where opportunities are missed. There could be debt that needs to be restructured. And these are often for, you might think, well, oh, these people are missing the boat. You know, clearly they've never paid any attention. I have a set of clients that are often extremely sophisticated, and they just don't focus on all of these different parts. So I just submitted the manuscript for my book, and the working title is called The 13 Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, because just because you're smart doesn't mean you don't do dumb things. And I think I learned that working in the industry, but also listening to phone calls, and people will admit it. They'll be like, I did the really dumb thing. Here's what I did. And they'll tell you, they'll actually like sort of bare their souls, which is kind of wonderful. But they need help to figure out how to get to the next place. And so just because you make the mistake doesn't mean you stay mired in that mistake. That's the beauty of it. Whatever is a mistake, should you shouldn't be sitting there and going, oh, everything is lost. Well, as long as you're not 120 years old, everything is not lost. You have plenty of years to make it right, to improve your financial situation, which, by the way, could be increasing rate of return, could be reducing taxes, or it could be taking less risk. Which I love. I am the self-proclaimed wimp of the century. Since we last spoke, Gary, there's a ton of stuff going on with this thing called the fiduciary standard. Anyone who is a member of NAPFA is automatically considered held to this concept, which is my client comes before me or my company. Should that be the standard of care for anyone who touches well, money? That absolutely should be the standard of care, you know, putting the client first. And let me just back up for a moment because there's been all this discussion over the last set of years on the fiduciary rule. And when I was chair of NAPFA, I was saying we have to uphold the fiduciary standard. And what did I hear from the board? Ah, oh, very complicated word. People will never understand what that word means. And the point is the lawyers, we're obligated as a lawyer to a fiduciary standard. The medical community has to put the patient's interest first. If you think you're a profession, if you think you care about the public, doing anything short of a fiduciary standard is selling their interests down the tubes. You have to protect the public. And in the personal financial field, it has been driven by sales, 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 and sales. So they're inching out on the spectrum Really, they're not going as far as they need to to protect the public. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Gary Shatsky in just a minute. You know, we don't like suffering. Suffering, not a good thing. And one of the ways you can reduce the amount of suffering is to actually figure out where you stand and how you're doing. And our sponsor, Betterment, can help you with that task. Betterment offers personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or to get the retirement you want. They design their service to help customers build wealth, plan for the future, plan for retirement, achieve their financial goals. In other words, Betterment's mission is to help customers make the most of their money. Better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed free at Betterment. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash betteroff. That's Betterment.com slash betteroff. And now more of our interview with Gary Shatsky. 
So let's just go back in time. We had the Department of Labor under President Obama that rolled out this uh, fiduciary rule when it came to retirement accounts. It's now getting rolled back. And then just recently, the Securities and Exchange Commission comes out and says, hey, that thing called suitability, which was a pretty low bar, like it has to be suitable, but not in your best interest. So I can hose you with a crappy product. No, I can hose you with a, an expensive product, not tell you there's a cheaper alternative, as long as the product itself is, quote unquote, suitable. Or not completely ridiculous. Or not, right. Or we're going to say the suitability is the not completely ridiculous standard. Now they come out with a new uh, rule, best interest, which is, by the way, slightly annoying to me because it conflates. It sort of almost sounds like fiduciary because everybody's been talking about fiduciary. It's in the best interest. So it's almost like in the public's mind can be quite confusing. That would be my comment. In that rule... What does a broker now have to adhere to? Well, I mean, they have an awful lot of latitude. So so the reality is they don't have to give you what's best for you. I mean, each of these words is attempting to give cold comfort to people that someone's out there kind of thinking about them a little bit. But the key word is a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and that's not what the public needs. Even the fiduciary rule, when it when the Department of Labor rolled that out, mm-hmm. people said, well, what do you think about it? I said, if, if they succeed in making that their big success and then they're done, we have all failed. Consumers have lost because they threw the bone out there that only related to ERISA accounts and a, a small subset of personal finance. Mm-hmm. And if they think that they've moved it forward and then we can readdress this issue in a few decades, the public is a loser. It's one thing to say, okay, in whatever narrow focus that you're providing advice, that you're gonna be doing the best you can. But again, personal finance is personal. Mm. It's not just managing one fixed sum of money. If people don't recognize that there are many moving pieces, their financial life will suffer. What's the best way that if someone's listening to this, they can feel like, all right, I work with a financial person. Can I just say to that person, is the question really that we pose, are you held to the fiduciary standard at all times? Is that the right question for people to ask? That would be the right first question. Okay, so that's number one. Then number two... When you're giving advice, are you considering my tax situation, my debt, my family situation, Mm -hmm. my insurance, all of these different factors? So this gets us into our last topic today, Gary, one that you love so much, um, (laughs) which is a little bit of a deep dive into annuities. I feel like I have, I'm going to just come out and say this. I've said it before. I'm coming out of the closet that I love insurance as a concept. It really is brilliant, right? I mean, I pay someone to take risk for me. Law of large numbers. It all works, right? It's fantastic. So I would say I love insurance, but I really have a tough time with insurance salespeople. As a concept, I think insurance is incredibly important. It's a cornerstone of many financial lives. Like, you got to protect people. So annuities are essentially insurance products, some of which have lots of different bells and whistles. It's uh, been an oversold product in many ways. Um, it is actually unbelievably allowable to sell someone an annuity inside of an, a retirement account. It's outrageous. I never understood how that is possible, but it's a very strong insurance lobby, I'm sure. Give me the upside first. Like, What makes an annuity an interesting product to you? Certainty, which some annuities can provide, is attractive. If you're talking about a fixed annuity, which is 
agreeing to pay you a fixed uh, payment for your life or for 20 years or or uh, anything that is as fixed and guaranteed by the insurance company uh, is very comfortable. And people will say, well, I like knowing I have this number. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the, the greatest single advantage. In other instances, it's sold that it might not be guaranteed, but there are various protections if the market falls apart. Right. You, you can pay for those. Yeah, and you'll pay for them. You might not lose everything. So then what do you walk away with as a, a customer? You go, oh, well, uh, then I don't have all that risk. You have to quantify to some extent what you're giving up for certain protections. So in the case of a fixed annuity, you might be giving up a much higher rate of return. If interest rates rise again and yet again and yet again, you might be sitting in a product that's pegged to an interest rate that is dramatically lower than where it should be, guaranteeing you a lower payout for the rest of your life. Well, that's certainty, I guess, but not the kind you really want. Right. Clearly, I've pivoted from the good news about <laughs> about annuities because it's a shorter story, really. So let's look at kind of what the alternatives are. I mean, and also we should just note that most annuities, not all, because now there are some lower cost alternatives, Absolutely. right? Most, the vast majority of annuities that are sold in this country are really expensive, like three times more expensive than a, an alternative portfolio of Mutual funds, right? Yeah, they're, the expenses are staggering. They are absolutely staggering, and, and it's opaque. You can't even see them. You, you, you could drill down on some of the documentation and come up with some of the upfront commissions that go out the window, like before you say hello. And then you have the ongoing expenses that are baked into the products that uh, guarantee you a lifetime of, of fees. incremental fees. Um, again, certainty. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, so... Yeah, they are getting a little bit cheaper, but cheap they're not. What would would you consider using a an annuity for a client? In what case you would use that, and what would you use? Well, it's very it's very rare. I mean, I I looked at one just for a fixed annuity for someone who was handling someone's disabled uh, disabled individual's account, and they wanted some uh, certainty about the various payouts and. When you decide to do that, it isn't just a function of go out and get one. You have to, there's a lot of legwork you have to do. You have to price it out. You have to look at all the various players. Um, And there might be a situation, which I said to this individual, you're going to leave likely money on the table by doing this. But as long as you understand that, that it could be a real sum of money, but you want the certainty, uh, then you could go ahead and do it. I agree. There are use cases for it. It's really hard to find them, and it's also really hard to execute them because I think that what happens is um, a lot of times people get utsy when something happens in the market. A financial term, Right, and they blow up your plan anyway. They can blow up what you thought was going to be like. They're like, yes, I want a guarantee. I want consistency, and then you're in a roaring bull market, and they're like, I don't like that. Right. Well, people, you know, uh, there was a time when no one wanted in the market because – Markets blow up, and now, you know, people think uh, they only go in one direction. If somebody is pitched an annuity or a uh, some sort of cash value insurance product, three questions to ask. Uh, why do I need a cash value insurance product? Do I need insurance or do I need an investment? That that would be one of them. Okay. The, the next one would be, why, why do I need this particular product? for insurance for a lifetime, if you're talking about insurance, for mm-hmm. a lifetime. Because very frequently people's needs for life insurance tends to go down as you get older. 
And as you know, it's because the people that you're trying to protect with your life insurance also tend to be getting older. So with a shorter life expectancy of, of the survivor, you tend to need less money. And third, you tend to self-insure because as you go through life, if you're working, you're putting away money. So you're going to have to have them kind of explain that. Normally, you'll get some collection of answers about amorphous tax savings, uh, exceptional comfort, and the inquiry about whether or not you really care for your family. <laughs> we just got a call about that. Oh, you're going to save your kids taxes. I'm like, do you have an estate worth more than $11 million? Right. What you always hear from the insurance sales folks and a lot of salespeople is they say, I have this whole life policy. My whole family does. And what I say to people, to, to clients of mine, I said, they don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, today I'm going to take advantage of a lot of people. They buy into the, you know, they yeah. drank the Kool-Aid. Yes. Okay. So it's a small subset that think they're defrauding people. Mm -hmm. they, they believe in their product because you want to. If you did something terrible all day, you wouldn't feel very good. So you right. morph it into something good. Uh, we started the program with a question, which was your best career decision. What was your worst either career or money decision? Uh, <laughs> one of my best and my worst. I was uh, a teenager. I had a little bit of money. And I got involved in the stock market and I got involved in options at 16 or 17. And uh, I had built $1,000 up to $3,500, $4,000. Wow. And in about um, a day, it was down to like $400. Oof. <laughs> and and my, my brother's like, what's going on? My younger brother, well, I don't understand. I said, look, I have this money. I had it, it's not here, and it's not coming back. And probably one of the, the greatest things you can do is lose money. Lose money. If you make money from the word hello, you are going to have no sense of risk tolerance. You're, you're just not going to have any vision of it. And if you delay long enough, you'll be putting a lot more money at stake uh, than your $3,500. Exactly right, which was giant. I mean, let's I know. be clear. You I know. know. So, uh, what do you remember the stock that you were trading? I, 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 I remember the first stock I ever bought. It was called Moore Shoe, but this, this was an option. It was after that. I went to a little payphone in my high school and I used to call for a <laughs> quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we so appreciate you joining us today. It was so much more fun in person than on the phone. Gary Shatsky, objectiveadvice.com. Check him out. He's so smart. And if you live in the New York area, you know. Not only New York, my Oh, wait, you could do it everything. Yeah. You, you're you're multi-state. I'm a multi-state. Fantastic. True. But thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our listener question of the week. If you have a financial issue that is burning, a question, maybe it's about retirement, maybe it's about Roth versus traditional, maybe it's about taxes, let us know. We might be able to help you out. Our email address is askjill at betteroffpodcast.com, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, we are talking to Matt from Boulder, Colorado. Tell me what I can do for you. So I was wondering... Um my husband and I were in our early to mid thirties. We went to college a little late and we're getting started in our careers. I've been working full time for about four years and my husband just graduated veterinary school and he's gonna start his first real full time job pretty soon. Uh, so we're we've been saving in our we've been saving our Roth IRA accounts for, for years now. We have about thirty five thousand saved in those accounts. Great. I also have a pension account with my employer. Um, 
currently valued about 20000 But soon we're going to be switching tax brackets. Uh, we're going to be moving from about 12% to the 22 or 24% tax tax brackets, and I'm wondering if we should switch our IRA contributions from a Roth to a traditional. Ah, very excellent question. So how much do each of you make? How much do you earn? I earn about uh, 70000 and he's probably going to be earning about the same when he starts in. So you're going to make about 140 together. Do you uh, rent or own right now? We currently rent. Okay. Any debt from that experience of going to vet school or going to college late for you guys? Thankfully, he doesn't have any debt, but I still have about 35000 in student loans. And what's the rate on those, approximately? It's about uh, 55 or 6%. Are you trying to accelerate that pay down or not right now? I would like to. Right now, I'm just making um, the standard payments, so I still have about seven years left on the standard payment plan, but I would like to make more payments toward it. Do you guys split your expenses straight like 50-50 or have you been paying more? Are you like, tell me about like some couples are weird about this. I say weird (laughs) in that. I shouldn't say weird. That's a judgment. Some couples are like, hey, honey, that's your debt. Tough luck. It's all yours. How are you guys handling the splitting up of the A, the responsibilities and the cash flow? Well, I've been I've been making most of the cash flow over the past few years. Um, But but what what income he makes? We, we both put into a joint checking account, and then we just we just split it out from okay, there. Okay, got it. When he starts earning the seventy grand, will he be working for a practice that has a retirement plan, or is he going to be self-employed? What's his trajectory now? It's it's probably going to be a practice. They're probably going to have some kind of a a four hundred one k or four hundred three b. Okay, great. So he'll put money into that. You'll put money, continue to put money into a Roth. But you're doing a Roth and a deferred comp through work. That's correct. Yeah, I have to I have to contribute to my public pension. Okay. But right now you're maxing out your Roth at at 5500. I'm not maxing it out. It's probably closer to 2500 or 3000 a year right now. All right. So, the question being, do you go to a traditional versus a Roth? I still think you stay in the Roth. And here's okay. why. Um you're you're probably going to stay in the 22% bracket number 1 because that bracket for married filing jointly goes up to $165,000. So at least for the time being, you're in 24. And I just get the sense that he's going to make a lot more money going forward. In fact, you know, you might get to the point where you just can't even use a Roth on a contributory basis. So I would use the Roth as long as it is available to you guys, because I just believe in my heart of hearts that these tax rates are probably about the lowest that we'll see for a long time. And so that means that you want to try to have as much money as you can going to a Roth asset versus a traditional asset because the tax rates are low. So I think that's good. Separately, I think that now that you guys are making more money, you know, two things come to mind is, number one, we really want to get a jump on paying down that debt because a five and a half or six percent note, there's no guarantee of getting five and a half or six percent anywhere. So I'd love to get that cleaned up. Uh, ideally, and I don't know what's really going to be possible, that instead of putting, you know, half of the amount available in a Roth, that you could max it out at fifty five hundred. I think that that's about right for you guys. You said you're a renter. How much is your rent right now? Uh, here in Boulder, it's about. 2200 a month. Um, we're here for a, a one-year internship for Mike, and we're probably going to be moving out of Boulder this summer to someplace um, less expensive. Okay. Yeah. Staying in Colorado? 
Possibly. We're not sure yet. It's going to depend on where the jobs are for him. Okay. So in the meantime, I know this from your email that you want to buy a home, right? That's correct. Um, yeah. We're thinking about saving for a house. Okay. So there has to be, like, there's a, a triage going on right here. So I kind of want you to do three things at once. Let's just say that if you had, I don't know, $9,000 every month that were was available or I don't know, $6,000 every month that's available to put towards something. I actually would like you to be splitting it equally. Number one, to max out the Roth. Number two, to the debt pay down. And number three, for the house down payment fund. So those three things simultaneously. So whatever extra cash flow you have because he's now finally working should be used in a way that can get you to all three of these objectives. So it's tough because, you know, you're you're juggling a lot, but you're young. You're early to mid-30s. You got time, and we don't even know where you're going to be yet. So we don't know, like, kind of what you're saving for. I think those three priorities, I wouldn't weigh one above the other. Make sense? Yeah, I think so. A related question. Yep. I've, I've read that I can use up to $10,000 from my Roth IRA toward a house down payment. Boo. Do you have an opinion on that? Do you Boo. Think that's a, that's I don't want you to, to I don't want you to do that. If it were like, oh, gosh, the only money I have is this Roth IRA, you're going to save way more than than that in this house down payment fund. And okay. just be a little patient. It's It'll be fine. I really don't like tapping retirement assets for these. I mean, I think you can tap a, a retirement asset when it's actually a real critical issue. But other than that, I'm not a fan of invading that. So I think you should okay. keep doing it. Get that Roth contribution to 5500 Get that debt paid down. Start accumulating your house down payment fund. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Good luck. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks so much to Gary Shatsky and our caller, Matt. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer in the world. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.